Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to Omni Shambles, the Daily Beast podcast where we try to make sense of the Trump era and, to the extent we can, point you in the right direction as the week begins. I'm your host, Jackie Kucinich, and this week I'm joined by Mark Short, former legislative liaison for the White House and current fellow at the Miller Center at UVA and a CNN contributor. And of course, Aswin Supsang, our White House reporter, who shows up whether we want him here or not. How's it going? Welcome back, Swin. Good to be here. We even told you the wrong address this time, and you're here. I figured it out. I got my Zillow floor plans, and I got here on time. Sorry, Mark. So to fill everyone in, Mark's former job was the go-between between the White House and the Hill. So I kind of want to start talking about where we've been, and then we'll get to where we're going in terms of shutdown and legislating in the year ahead. So one of the things that struck me was how little outreach there was to Democrats from Trump districts and Trump states from the White House. And we wrote a story about this. And one of the Democrats I spoke to was Ron Kind from Wisconsin. And he told me that he hadn't heard from anyone at the White House since you were there. So I want to start and talk about how does this usually happen when the president needs votes on the Hill, maybe not from people in his party? What is your job? How does that kick in? Well, Jackie, I think that anyone serving the White House Legislative Affairs job it needs to understand what the White House priorities are and then who your target audience is on Capitol Hill and how you're going to try to win those votes over. There's no doubt that you could look at this scenario, frankly, months ago and probably predicted we were going to end up in a shutdown because with the change of power in the House, then what's the pathway forward? And the wall, frankly, has become so politicized that it's not really based on policy anymore. There's been several occasions in the past when Democrats have supported elements of physical structures on the border, whether that's the 2006 Secure Fence Act or whether or not more recent efforts when you look at President Obama's head of Customs and Border Patrol who said this was what they wanted and advocated for as well. So your job is to make sure you're reaching out to those Democrats who, as you say, are in perhaps Trump districts and say, here's an area where you can work with us. But the wall was always going to be one that really sort of puts the two camps in each of their sides. And it's really hard to find a way forward. If you're going to find a way forward on something like that, that I think is difficult for anyone to break with their political base, I think candidly, the deal has to become bigger. In other words, you have to offer something on DACA or you have to offer something on immigration reform to win over Democrat votes. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Wouldn't that start, though, with talking to the, those freshman Democrats, the ones who maybe aren't as trained to say no, or someone like a Joe Manchin, who I think had a little bit of outreach, you know, from Jared Kushner, but then not again. Look, I think that the White House Legislative Affairs team does a great job. And I think sometimes there are members of Congress who claim that they weren't contacted when sometimes perhaps they were. But having said that, again, I think this is something the administration should have been reaching out candidly months ago before we reached a shutdown. Because once you're in the shutdown, again, your position's harden and it's a lot harder to get out of it. And I think we could have seen this coming a while back. As some of our listeners might not know, Mark, you were actually working in the Trump administration during the president's first shutdown. Is there something from that episode or your time working as director of legislative affairs for President Trump that you think, even if purely anecdotally or tactically, could help inform the people currently in there serving the president as they forge forth in the next three weeks? Well, Swin, let's remember it was just a year ago, January of 2018, that we had a May shutdown. May as well have been 10. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and that time, if you recall, the Democrats took the initiative. So you call it the Trump shutdown. That was really was the Schumer shutdown because Senator Schumer said, I am not going to pass a continuing resolution to keep the government funded unless you include DACA. So the irony is here we are 12 months later, almost with the reverse scenario. 
typically I think shutdowns are losers for all people involved. And the side that is initiating the shutdown, I think every time loses politically. So I think there were lessons learned from a year ago that people should have seen coming and known that rarely does it work out that the side that appears to be initiating it comes out as a political winner. I do think over the next few weeks, I'm sorry to be a pessimist here, but I I don't think there's going to be a legislative solution. And I do think what we're going to end up with is a national emergency declaration announced in the president by the time we reach February 15th. Again, the conventional wisdom currently is, and it would not be the first time the conventional wisdom were proven wrong in the Trump era. But having said that, there seems to be a glut of legal opinion that if the president goes ahead and does this, it'll get tied up in the courts almost immediately. So is that a prediction you endorse? And even if you didn't, like, let's say that does happen, then what are we left with? If you argue there's no legislative solution to this, the president goes in and tries to do this by executive fiat or whatever, and it just goes nowhere, then everybody, including the Republican base or the MAGA folks that really do want this wall, are back to square zero. Well, a couple data points. One was that actually last year in the large omnibus spending bill that was signed in March of 2018, there was $1.6 billion in border wall funding. That was the first new wall funding in a decade. I think the administration should have championed that more and should have made that more as a victory as opposed to saying, here's what more we need. They should have said, we got 1.6, and there was some agreement this year, I think it was get 1.3 in this year's budget that, again, would have been provided the first two years. The reality is that now we've elevated to, say, five, and I think the two sides are entrenched. You're no longer having policy arguments over this. I mean, what's so ridiculous is that this is one-tenth of one percent of the federal budget, the difference between five billion and one billion. It's one-tenth of one percent of the overall federal budget, yet we brought the entire government to a complete shutdown over it. I accept your premise, win that we're likely to end up in the courts battling this, but I think that it has become, for Democrats, something they cannot give the president. And for president, it's something that he promised his voters in 2016 that he views foundational to his support. And so it's become a political argument and not a policy argument. So if you were in there still advising President Trump, is there a point coming soon where you would advise him if you were still in there? To move on. There are other legislative priorities and other things to get done. And as you point out, it's gotten to a point where Democrats who now control the House will not allow him to have this. My encouragement would be to say that the argument should be broader than the wall. In other words, what many Democrats argued this last November was a campaign to abolish ICE. I think Democrats risk painting themselves into a corner of appearing. It's really many. I mean, your party has your loudest voices and the Democrats do as well. I know that's the political argument, but I don't know if that's real, that all of the Democrats want to apologize. That's fair, Jackie. I don't if I said all, then that's a mistake on my part. But there are plenty who have advocated that. And I think that what the administration should be doing is showing the Democrats more broadly don't want to support border security and force them to come forth a solution that does. I know that during the shutdown, Democrats for the first time came forward with some of their own plans for that. They've not had a vote on that. I think they should for their own benefit, because the argument that the administration made was broader in funding than the wall. It was also saying, we need more ICE agents. We need more judges, immigration judges on the border. These are things that Democrats had opposed for a long time that they now seem to be coming around on. They want to say, we don't agree with the wall, but I don't think they want to be at camp with saying, we don't believe in border security. And that's where I think the administration should play it politically is to make this a bigger argument about a larger issue than the wall and about border security in general. That would be incredibly funny if the bizarro compromise we got out of this was, OK, you get the wall, but we get to abolish ICE. <laughs> well, that's obviously not going to happen. That's, but look, the administration has asked for more detention beds and asked for more judges that have been denied. 
And if there's pressure and Democrats say, okay, well, we need to show there were four elements of border security, but not the wall, and they come forward with those plans, then perhaps there's beginnings to be places that you can agree on. Let me take this back because you're also a veteran of the House. What advice would you give Republicans in dealing with the White House in the next three weeks? I don't necessarily disagree with you that we're going to end up with Trump declaring a national emergency. But if they're able to hash out an agreement, what would you tell Republicans how to best deal with the president on this issue? Honestly, Jackie, I think a lot of the Republicans have come to work directly with the president. When we were off air, you were asking about how does a typical White House-led affairs operation work? And usually, I don't think that members of Congress are encouraged to go around staff and talk directly to the president. But that is the way it functions in this White House. And there's pros and cons of that. And I just think at a staff level, you have to be cognizant of it. In many cases, this president wants to be incredibly accessible. And that's an asset in many cases to getting members of Congress to come along with your side. But it also means you need to have great internal communication so that you know what the president has told Congress in X, Y, or Z. And it's not as if you have different people getting different stories. Was there ever or is there ever a concern about a Republican revolt? We started seeing that last week with, you know, Republicans upset about the shutdown being over it. Is that fear in the White House at all? I don't think that there's that fear right now. I think it is something that is a reality, Jackie. I think that particularly in the Senate, you could run a risk of having 60 votes go the other way. It was important for the president to at least wait this out to have a vote so he can make the case to the American people that, look, here's what I've laid out for border security. Here's what's not happening. I gave Congress every opportunity to get it done. I even extended an additional three weeks. It's not getting done. It sort of sets up declaring a national emergency as opposed to having done that weeks ago. Right. What would you tell Democrats in terms of how they deal with this White House? What advice would you give them? Honestly, it's the same advice I've given them that I would give Republicans. I think this president is very accessible and he prefers having those one-on-one conversations with members. Many Democrats in the early days told us that they had come over to the White House more times in the first few months of the Trump administration than they had the entire years of the Obama administration. Yeah, Obama had a problem with that, not talking to members of Congress. It's a different personality, yeah. right? Again, it's just trying to say who's has which strengths and weaknesses. Well, no, I'm just saying, to your point, that, that was a big criticism of Obama in right. terms of how he interacted with Congress. Fair. My point is I'm not yeah. trying to make it a criticism. I'm just saying it's different styles. Right. And for this administration, the president, I think, honestly shines in those smaller environments often when the cameras are not on and he's having a private conversation with members or a small group of members. And that's where he can make the most progress. And I think that that's where for members who want to make progress, they should be. I think on the border wall, though, Jackie, I think that it's so politicized that for the base of the Democrat Party, they don't want any members crossing over. So I do think there's those opportunities as the year moves along on issues like infrastructure and drug pricing where they can work with the president. But Right now, I think that the sides are too entrenched on the border security issue, and it's hard to see how it benefits many Democrats politically to cross over and make a deal with the president. So until we get a new president or new congressional makeup, are we just destined to stare at each other blankly from across the aisle for the next two years? No, I don't think so. I think that the border issue is, is separate. I honestly think that, you know, the first two years of administration when we had control of the House and the Senate, it was an opportunity to advance more partisan legislation. But now there's several areas where the president actually on several policy issues probably agrees more closely with Democrats on drug pricing and on infrastructure. And so I do think that there's definitely inside the Democrat Party, it seems there's a political scarlet letter if you're seen like working with the president. I accept that. But there's other Democrats, as Jackie said, who reside in districts that the president won or who have campaigned and said, look, I am a Democrat, but when it makes sense to work with the president, I will. 
And on those policy issues, I think there's plenty of opportunity to work forward. So I know that there's a lot of commentary right now that says, doesn't this shutdown just show that we're going to get nothing done for the next two years? I don't buy into that. I think, in fact, what you can see is for many constituents, they'll say a pox on both your houses. This is ridiculous that you're having shutdowns over one-tenth of one percent of the government. Get to work and show you can actually do things together. And so I'm probably more optimistic on infrastructure and drug pricing legislation. What would be your top priority? Those two things, but which one? How would you approach it? (laughs) I think that's probably a conversation that you need to have with some people in Democrat leadership in the House as to what they'd be willing to move first. Because they control the schedule. And I think, Jackie, there's going to be some political votes that Democrat leadership's going to want to do here yeah, in the first few months. I don't know how excited they're going to be to actually move to legislation, but at some point, I think they will. And personally, I think infrastructure is something that the president campaigned on in 2016. He certainly has talked about it, being a builder himself. And that's an area where I think there could be more compromise and better rewards to the American people. Do you have a story from when you were there about a negotiation that worked? Where you saw people come together and have progress. And the president helping things along in the uh, sort of closed environment away from the press scenario you were alluding to earlier. Honestly, I'm sorry. I'm not going to tell private stories of those conversations. But I do think that there are several occasions where that actually worked. When people came over in a smaller group or individual meetings to the president said, here's an issue that I think is a pathway forward that I think made sense. During the tax reform debate, for instance, there were different opinions about what we could do with the top individual rate. Should it stay at 39? Should it come down? How are you compensating if you're taking away state and local deductions? And when members made the personal appeal to the president say, here's where it impacts my state, particularly for senators, I saw the president yield and say, okay, you make a good argument. I understand. Now you're at UVA. How do you explain all of this to your students? How do you talk to them about what's going on in the White House? I know the president says it's not chaotic, but it feels chaotic sometimes just being on the outside. How do you talk to them about this? About which element of that, Jackie? I, I think about, I mean, about all of it. I, mean, I think it's hard to, I think, both macro and micro. What, what um, is the most common question you get from your students <laughs> about the president? <laughs> well, look, I feel very blessed to have the opportunity to be down at the University of Virginia, and I'm grateful for those opportunities I have to work with students. And there's no doubt that there's a lot of students who you'll be surprised when don't support the president's agenda. No. And so um, <laughs> we, when we have conversations about it, it's usually very policy oriented. My perspective is that I come at this as somebody, as Jackie knows, I was Mike Pence's chief of staff on Capitol Hill. And so when Mike was tapped to be the vice president, that's when I joined the campaign. But I came in as somebody who was a skeptic. I didn't think that this was going to be a successful campaign in 2016. And I remember mm-hmm. Labor Day weekend being in Eastern Ohio (laughs) at a Labor Day rally and tens of thousands of people coming out cheering for Trump and Pence. And I remember calling my wife for that weekend for the first time and saying, you know, there's something those of us here inside the Beltway are missing about what's going on in middle America, about how frustrated so many voters are that they want something different and they want to change. And they want somebody to go to Washington, D.C. and disrupt it altogether. And it wasn't normal traditional Republicans at Labor Day rally. It was independents and Democrats who felt left behind by their leadership, felt left behind by trade deals, and felt concerned about a lot of elements of where our country was going. The best way I think I'd ever heard that phenomenon that you were talking about crystallized to me was actually written by this left-wing writer named Jeb Lund. I think he was writing for The Guardian back in early 2016. I'm only mildly paraphrasing him here, where his argument was there are millions of people, millions and millions across this vast country of ours who know exactly who engineered the shattering of their worlds. They know exactly who did it. And with the possible exception in 2016 of Bernie Sanders, 
every single person running in the Republican and Democratic fields was running on the credentials of being one of those people. And they know that Donald Trump is not one of those people. Fair. I mean, yes, there's no doubt that even in the Republican primary, people were trying to be the most outsider. Well, you're not going to be more outsider than Donald Trump was. He had candidates who I think had had, I think it was the most talented field Republicans had in generations of successful governors and senators. But the American people wanted something different. They wanted something different. Somebody would go to Washington, D.C. and disrupt it. And so what I share with my students is I think inside the Beltway, we continue to hear a lot of gnashing of teeth of how unnormal it is the way that the White House operates or chaotic, as you say, Jackie. But I think in many cases, people were frustrated and felt like Washington, D.C., people would go there and say one thing and come home and say and do something entirely different. And they wanted somebody who would disrupt it. And there's no doubt that's what's happening. To tie this back into our earlier conversation, do you think there is reasonable concern within Trump world and within the administration that if the president isn't successful on things such as his big, beautiful border wall, that then what is to stop him from being reduced in people's and supporters' minds as just another politician who made a lot of big, flashy promises during a campaign and then ultimately was not able to deliver? How does that make him different from a Bush or a Romney? It's fair to say that if you're going to be the disruptor and the outsiders and go and change Washington, D.C., if you're not able to change it, then what's the basis for reelection? But I think, frankly, the president has a lot to run on. I think between where we are with the economy, what he accomplished mm-hmm. with tax cuts, where he's accomplished with rebuilding the military, I think that, candidly, the world's a safer place. I think the president has a lot to run on right now, Swin. On the border security, again, my argument would be the administration can make this a bigger argument than about the wall. Talk about what you're doing, changes you're making in border security policy that is broader than just the fiscal structure. I think the fiscal structure is an important part of it. But... Again, it's become so much about Trump's wall. It's become personalized between Republicans and Democrats. In large part because of the president. Yeah, yeah. I accept that, Swin. But what I think the administration should have done from the start is that the plan we actually asked Congress to fund was a plan put forward by career officers at Customs and Border Patrol. It's not a political document. It actually shows here's the area where we want a wall. And you've seen the president shift from saying concrete to the steel barriers because that's what they said they wanted. They said, here's where we need it. We don't need it from coast to coast. Here's the limited areas we actually need a wall. And here's where we why we want steel barriers so we can see through the other side. And that's what we put forward. But you're right. The way it's been presented is it's basically become a referendum on Trump as opposed to here's a rational border security plan put forward by career officials inside the department. He could have done this last year. He had options when mm-hmm. he had both houses of Congress. Sure. And so, Jackie, you'll know that I think I've seen that commentary a lot to say, look, when you had Republican control, why didn't get all this done? Is you know, funding bills require 60 votes in the Senate. You would never been able with 51 Republicans just to get nine Democrat senators to just roll along with what you want. I don't know. But, a lot of them were up for re-election and were pretty nervous about it. Well, so what the administration asked for last year was $1.6 billion, and that's what we got. And that's what I think that we should have done a better job of saying, look, we delivered on that promise. We've begun construction of the wall and we delivered. We worked with Congress and got exactly what we asked. That ask was changed this year. During 2017, just as long as we're taking that trip down Trumpian memory lane, do you think it was a mistake for the administration to go after things like legal immigration during that entire fight? I don't have to tell you that many Democratic lawmakers in their offices would say that was 100% a Stephen Miller-shaped poison pill that was put into negotiations. I think Stephen gets way too much blame. I come to like Stephen a lot, and I think he's very smart in this White House, and he gets vilified. But I will accept, Swin, that you know if you look at what the president believes, 
And what he has said, and more recently has begun to show more of that, is to say, when he was down at the Farmers Convention, to say, we need more immigration. We need more workers in this country. Those are positions he has that I think we need as a White House to be more articulate about than we have been to date. And the president himself has sort of gone back and forth. Uh, he said multiple times during the stretch of the administration that he would prefer less legal immigration. He doesn't use those words, but the policies his administration, I believe, up until this day have been advocating would cut legal immigration to say nothing of illegal immigration. It's fair to say that he's looking to cut current programs, but when he talks about wanting to expand merit-based immigration, he does want to provide avenues for more workers to come to this country. And I and I think, candidly, a guest worker program, you know, Jackie knows this. I got to know Mike Pence because I was chief of staff for K. Billy Hutchins from Texas, and we were working on a guest worker program to bring more workers into this country back in 2006 when there was a lot of debate about the Bush amnesty plan. And so the irony that that was my introduction to Mike Pence and now became part of the Trump administration is certainly there. But, you know, when private conversation with the president, I think he accepts that we need to provide more workers because the economy is so strong with unemployment, 3.7 percent. That's just a reality we face. Well, that's where we're going to have to leave it today. Mark, thank you so much for coming out today. Our inaugural Trump World guest for Omni Shambles. Yes, and what a guest he was. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening, guys. Find us at thedailybeast.com, iTunes, and Google Play and wherever fine podcasts are found. Talk to you next week.